Bear with me. I've got one more trip to make here. substitute for Tim, but I'll do my best this morning. I'm going to share with you two, I think, vignettes more than full-length sermons, but something that we need to think about seriously. I'm holding in my hand probably the two most challenging books that I've ever read. The Bible, of course, because it seeks interpretation in so many ways. In its pages, it interprets itself, but you have to be able to sort those out. The other book, whoops, just set that on the deal. The other book is called Living Jesus by Randy Harris. It's a study of the Sermon on the Mount. And what makes his book unique is the way he develops his argument. And I'll get to that as we get to the end of what we have to say this morning. So if you have your your Bibles, if you'll open them to Matthew chapter 13, we're going to read a well-known and yet seldom ever referred to parable spoken by our Lord. Matthew 13, beginning with verse 24. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. Now, I'm not a farmer. I'm not even a gardener. But I understand the power of seed. You put good seed in, you expect a good crop. You put corrupt seed in, and you don't know what you're going to get. But the point is that Jesus is speaking to farmers. These are people who make their life, their living, by doing this over and over and over and over through the years. I was not aware of this, but history tells us that there were some farmers who often feuded with each other. They were rivals. And they would deliberately sow bad seed in the other's field right after he planted it. So this is not an uncommon occurrence. This is something that did occur in Jesus' time and people were aware of it. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Because even they recognized if you plant good seed, you get a good crop. Where then did these weeds come from? Well, here in West Texas, that would be easy. It's the wind. I don't know where Russian thistles came from originally, but I know we're covered up with them down here in West Texas. The tumbleweeds. They're not native. They weren't here two, three hundred years ago. 
But they're here now, and they are prolific. Jesus answered, or the, the owner answered, an enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? What would be your response? Yeah, get rid of the weeds, man. I don't need the weeds. The weeds aren't marketable. They can't eat weeds. So Jesus' response is somewhat perplexing to us. He says, no, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. We're told that the particular seed that was planted along with the wheat is called, by our modern terms, darnell. Darnell looks a whole lot like wheat, but its roots are just below the surface of the ground, and they intertwined with everything that's growing around them. So if you pull one of them up, you're going to pull up the plant next to it, or two or three. So Jesus said, leave it alone. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. So there's the story, and we read this, and number one, we either dismiss it because we're not farmers and we don't understand the imagery here, or we think it too simple to have any real meaning or truth embedded in it. And yet in the very next part of this chapter, Jesus tells us he speaks to us in parables and in no other way so that that which has been hidden can be revealed through the centuries. So, yeah, it's a little story. But what was Jesus trying to impress? If you look down to verse 36, then he left the crowd and went into the house, and his disciples came in to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. They knew it had something to do with weeds. They didn't ask about the wheat and the weeds. They said, we don't understand that part where you said don't yank up the weeds. He answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters were angels. Now, when you reflect back on the parable that Jesus just told, it's pretty easy to see, okay, the, the wheat, the good seed, they're the good people. They're the people that the gospel has reached. They're the people that God has reunited with himself in relationship. The weeds are evil people. They're servants of Satan. Now, they may say they're servants of themselves, but the same thing. So, if there, are certain, if there are servants of Satan, there's two reasons, I think, that Jesus wants them, of course, he can do anything, he can change water to wine, but he can change these Darnell sprouts into wheat if he wants to, just give them time, and if they don't change, they're going to get yanked up, 
and burned by the angels of heaven. He winds this up by saying, as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. I want those words to rest in your mind for just a moment. The angels will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. Where were these weeds? They were in his kingdom. So don't mistake the idea that even in a church building, even in a synagogue, even in a house of worship, wherever it may be, there are those who look like the wheat. But they are, in fact, weeds. And they will be uprooted by the angels of God. The point of the whole parable, however is that you can't tell. I thought this morning about having some people come up here and, and ask you which one's a Christian, which one's not, but we don't have anybody who's not a Christian. But which ones are devoted to God and which ones are not, and you can't see that. And this is not a, 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 a measurement contest to see who has the deeper understanding, who has the most faith. That's not what it's about. What it's about are those who will obey Jesus and those who will only give lip service. That's why I said we were going to go back to Matthew 7 here in just a minute and talk about what Randy Harris has to say about the Sermon on the Mount. Years ago, I guess it must have been about 1982, 83, somewhere along in there, I had decided that when I finished my formal education, I needed to go as a missionary to Cuba, Brazil. It was one of the most interior cities of Brazil at that time and a capital of a region. There was no church there. So I went about trying to gather the support to go, and it was not forthcoming. So at that point, I knew it was not meant for me. But during the time that I was trying to raise funds, I met with a missionary from Brazil, and he made this statement, and I will never forget it. He said, how many of you know Matthew 28? We all raised our hand. Go you into all the world, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, and I'll, lo, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. He says, you realize that says, go, and I'm here to tell you 
We don't have trouble understanding that command. We have trouble doing it. Ever since that day, it has made me aware that filling my head full of these words, knowing the Bible from Genesis to Maps, is not going to help me. It's not going to help you. Unless you do it. Not perfectly. But do it. Obey. We even sing that song, Trust and Obey, because we know that our way to heaven is paid by Jesus, not by our deeds. But it is dependent upon our faith in Him and our obedience to His Word. Okay, let's go to Matthew 7. I'm going to wrap this up. Like I said, it's not going to be a long sermon today, but plenty to think about. Randy begins his book on the Sermon on the Mount completely different than every other theologian I've ever read. They interpret the Sermon on the Mount. They talk about what this word means and what that had to do with and and uh, culturally how important it was and, and different things, giving different shades of meaning all the way through. Basically, their conclusion is this is the cardinal rule of Christianity. This is the Magna Carta. However, you can't do it. It's impossible to keep. It's as hard to keep that as it is the law under Moses. Well, I had to agree to a certain extent, but not completely. G.K. Chesterton, a philosopher in England, said... Now, let me just read the statement because I'll get it messed up, sure as the world. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. And a lot of times that's our approach to the Beatitudes. We think, well, that's, that's meant for church leaders. That's meant for monastic monks. That's meant for uh, deep spiritual leaders. But the person in the pew can't possibly keep all that. I'm here to tell you the reason Jesus said those words is because he also gives us the power to do it. That's his gift to us. That's what the Holy Spirit's all about. It's not about just being able to read the words and having some vague concept of what they mean. But having the power to an act, action, to see them through. Look what he says there in the last chapter, or the last paragraph of Matthew 7. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, well, that's all of us. We've been hearing the word of Jesus since we were knee-high to grasshoppers. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, and puts them into practice. It's like a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
The rain came down, the stream arose, and the winds blew and the beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had a foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the stream arose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. You see, the teachers of the law expected you to practice what they said. Jesus expects you to practice what he said. Completely different. They could be hypocritical in the fact that they preach one thing and do another. But Jesus was no hypocrite. He practiced everything that he wants you to do. Forgive those who persecute you, who say all kinds of vile things against you for my name's sake. Oh, we make all kinds of rationalizations, excuses. I can't forgive that. That's just more than I can handle. Not in the power of Jesus is not. A lot of times we don't feel like we have the power of Jesus. And a lot of times we don't have the power of Jesus, and I'll tell you why. It's because we don't ask for it. You have not because you ask not. He begins that Sermon on the Mount with a word that we don't, begin to understand we haven't plumbed the depths on this word at all blessed makarios blessed who's blessed well according to our world and even the ancient world those that have money those that have power those that have influence those that have fame doesn't mention any of us does he Now, that's where it's wrong. Because the blessedness he's talking about is for every one of us. You will receive the blessing of God by living according to the tenets that he outlines in the Sermon on the Mount. Keeping yourself out of some sin rebuking other sin, but at the same time remembering that you yourself were a sinner redeemed by the blood of Christ and changed from the inside out. Randy makes the statement at the beginning of this book that he believes truly that the foundation 
of the Sermon on the Mount is found at its end. You'll read the Sermon on the Mount differently if you read that last little paragraph first. You're like a wise person if you hear my words and do them. You're a foolish person if you hear the same words but don't put them into action. Now I know that a lot of you even right now are thinking of ways that you can get out from under this challenge. I don't understand it. But you know what? Jesus didn't say you have to understand my word to do it. He said you've got to do my word. Period. And for a lot of us, we waited a long time before we ever got around to even trying it because we just... We felt like we had to understand it. We had to realize that, that maybe there was a key in here that we hadn't uncovered. No. That's why I am so happy that there are those new Christians who have not waited for deep understanding, definition of words, exposition of the scriptures to start doing it. Now even then, we have trouble sometimes because we kind of go through it cafeteria style. We pick what we want to do and leave the rest undone. But I don't think you'll find Jesus saying, my Father's will is a cafeteria. So we've got to do it and we will receive the blessing of God in the doing because our faith is built on an immovable, impenetrable, non-corrosive rock. The truth of Jesus Christ. Who he is. And obeying him because he's worthy of our obedience. He has never led us wrong. Never will lead us wrong. Never will tell us to do more than he himself did. No nail prints in these hands. But he has them in his. No spear mark in this side. There's a spear mark in his. I know there's a grave in my future. But I will be raised from it by the same power that raised him. If I have done what he tells me to do. Imperfectly, perfectly. Those aren't even in the, the discussion. But intently. Intently doing what he said. And God knows the difference of whether you're running on autopilot or you're making a conscious choice.
Jesus is inviting you into a relationship with his Father that he paid for you to have. In his body. Like a sacrificial animal, he allowed your sins to be placed on him. Not most of your sins, not some of your sins, all of your sins, past, present, and future. And then he endured the wrath of God, setting you free, just like the story of Barabbas. And when his side was pierced and blood flowed forth, that blood washes you of all iniquity. It pays your ransom. The devil has no claim on you anymore. You don't have to, 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 to try to be good enough for God. Because God established at the cross, you're good enough for Jesus. He died for you. If you're moved by that word at all, to accept his offer to come and be a child of God, blessed in this life, supremely blessed in the next with eternal life in the presence of God, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we invite you to come as we stand and sing.